Revelation. Back of the Bible. As I've been studying Revelation, I've realized that as you study Revelation, it, it's like it unlocks the Bible. You know, it's not just um, studying, you know, end times. It unlocks everything in Scripture. It makes more sense of so many things in Scripture if you put it in perspective with this Revelation. I think that's got why God put it there and wrote it the way he did, causing us to have to study the whole Bible to unlock what it means, and in the process it unlocks the whole Bible. Revelation part 22 today, the seven churches of Revelation. This is a very interesting section. And uh, now, this has taken me many, many hours to, uh, to get together and pull together. So um, I'm praying that we can get through, I'm, I'm hoping I can get through the whole thing. I doubt it today, but it'll more likely be two parts to do all the seven churches. So let's let's move into it. Now before we read anything from Scripture, I just want to talk about the seven churches. Revelation 1 to 12, you can look there in your Bibles, and it says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, who was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash round his chest, and he was among seven lampstands. And there was more descriptions of the Son of Man. He had seven stars in his hand. Revelation 1.20 says, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The lampstands represented just seven churches um, that were in Asia Minor at the time. That's one depiction. I was trying to find a good depiction um, and I didn't find a really, really super good depiction um, because I don't think that guy's eyes are like blazing fire, so there's things missing. <laughs> but um, that's the sort of thing you can imagine, you know. G uh, John gazing upon Jesus among seven lampstands. The seven letters to the seven churches are seven additional epistles. Now this is this is important what I'm about to say because I want us not to be mystified by this, these seven epistles. Because um, these are uh, letters to churches just as there was letters written by Paul to churches and there was letters written by John to churches and James. and So they're, they're just additional teachings and, and exhortations to the church. And they were written by Jesus but penned by the Apostle John. Because remember, Paul many times wrote letters and they said they were written by Paul, but they were penned by somebody else because he was in chains. He couldn't actually write. So someone else wrote them. That didn't mean they wrote it. So keep in mind that most of the epistles of the New Testament were addressed to churches. And like the letters of Paul, John, Peter and James, we can apply the exhortations given in these letters and be trained to better live the Christian life. So just as those letters, we can draw from the letters of Paul and so on we can get trained for the Christian life by applying to us something that was written to a specific group of people, we can do the same with these seven letters. Amen? What is agreed on among all eschatologists is that these letters were addressed to actual historical churches that existed. 
So that's a pretty unanimous thing. If, if someone doesn't believe that, then you could just about say, well, I don't know if you're really an eschatologist at all, because historically there was seven churches. Uh, there are, however, some eschatologists who see clear parallels between the letters to the seven churches and successive periods of church history from John's day to the present. They call that the historicist approach, but many futurists believe it too. But I'm going to talk about that uh, a little bit more later. Revelation 1, 10 to 11 says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Revelation 1.4a says to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And uh, the Asia of those days is not what we think of Asia today. Like it's not Taiwan and China and Thailand and Japan, India. It's not that. John was referring to what many call today Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. Just to clarify that. Because, you know, when I first saw Asia, I thought, what? Uh, that was 25 years ago when I became a Christian. But these were not only the seven churches of Asia Minor, though. There was more churches in that area. Actually, there would have been a lot more. We know that Colossae was located within Asia Minor. So it wasn't just the only churches in that area. There was seven handpicked by Jesus. And I believe these seven churches were chosen because between them all, they cover all the extremes of Christian life, both good and evil. So you get a a perfect cross-section, just like the letters that were chosen to be uh, included in our canon, from uh, all the different epistles that we read from Paul's epistles onwards, they're chosen from a, a, a huge amount of letters. There was actually a lot of letters. Paul wrote a lot more letters. I think there was four letters to the Corinthians alone. And there were many, many letters that were written to different churches, but and they've actually got historical proof of those, but they're not using those letters in the canon, the ones that were chosen here, I believe God made sure they ended up here so that we could be blessed by them. And they would cover all the extremes of the Christian life. Uh, the postal uh, route, which is, uh, it, this is interesting, the letters to the seven churches of Revelation were to be delivered to them by a mailman. A different mailman than today. Wouldn't have been driving a big red vehicle. <laughs> And it seems that they were written in the order of what would have been a round trip through Asia Minor. So if you look at this, and you can see uh, there's Patmos, which is where uh, John wrote the letter. And the closest church to Patmos was the first church here, Ephesus. And then they circled around to Smyrna. They went up to Pergamos, uh, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and finally to Laodicea like a, a, a route that they took. And that's interesting because it, it obviously is why the order of the churches came in that sequence. Um, but it's very interesting that all things that are designed by God, they're all, it's pretty mind-blowing what gets included in the, as the mystery is, is revealed to do with the seven churches, that God would plan it to be in this way and in that order. To appreciate the seven letters to the seven churches, it helps us to study a brief history of the cities where the seven churches were situated. So I'm going to give you a very brief history. Um, and when I say brief, it'll be brief. We're not going in elaborately. If it was Joe Schimmel's church, he would spend half an hour talking about one church. 
but um, I'm not going to do that to you. But he makes it interesting. It's a very interesting study as you do it. There's some ruins in the city of Ephesus. So you could imagine if that was all, you know, tricked up, it would be a pretty uh, amazing looking building. Actually, if you look at that, there's, we rarely see something that beautiful today, do we? You know, so it was, it's incredible the kind of city that it was. Ephesus was an ancient Greek city on the coast. So the first letter went to the church of Ephesus. It was an ancient Greek city on the coast of Ionia, three kilometers southwest of present-day Selkirk in Isma province, Turkey. It was built in the 10th century BC. The city was famed for the nearby temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Among many other monumental buildings are the Library of Celsus and a theatre capable of holding 25,000 spectators, the largest in the world at that time. That's a big theatre. The Gospel of John may have been written here in the city of Ephesus. The city was the site of several 5th century Christian councils and you can check out the councils of Ephesus. The name Ephesus means desirable. It was the city which held one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis. And in Acts 19, Paul was so effective at soul winning in Ephesus that the silversmiths of Ephesus created a riot to stir up the Ephesians in an effort to turn them back to their gods so that they would not lose their business of fashioning idols. Anyone who's read the book of Acts will remember that story. There was a great riot that took place. Uh, the key scripture here is Revelation 2.4, you have forsaken your first love. We always remember that. And you, we also question ourselves, have I forsaken my first love? When I first got saved, I was so passionate and I don't have that passion anymore. Why not? Have I forsaken my first love? Who's ever asked themselves that question? Yeah. So that's how these epistles can apply to our lives. Then there was the church of Smyrna, the second church. In Roman times, Smyrna was considered the most brilliant city of Asia Minor, successfully rivaling Pergamos and Ephesus. Its streets were wide and paved. It was celebrated for its schools of science and medicine and for its handsome buildings. On the slope of Mount Pagus was a theatre which seated 20,000 spectators. In the year 23 AD, a temple was built in honour of Tiberius and his mother, Julia, and the Golden Street, uh, connecting the temples of Zeus, Cybele, is said to have been the best in any ancient city. So these are really wealthy cities. These are very prosperous cities. Smyrna means death. The name Smyrna means death. And it comes from the word uh, myrrh. And myrrh was a perfume used for embalming, as in John 19.39. It's an anointing oil. It's deodor it deodorizes clothes, as you can read in Esther 2.12. And it's a cosmetic in John 19.39. In the New Testament, myrrh is associated with death. They put that myrrh on a dead body. Uh, myrrh was their chief export of the city in ancient times. And the key scripture is Revelation 2.9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. This, and the church of Smyrna was greatly persecuted and suffered a lot. Pergamum, Pergamus served as the capital city of the Greek dynasty of Attalid kings. Eumenes II, um, in, who was just before Christ, one. 97 to 159 before Christ, was the most illustrious king of the dynasty, and during his reign, the city reached its greatest heights. Art and literature were encouraged, and the city, and in the city was a library of 200,000 volumes. So it's a big library, which later Antony gave to Cleopatra, as if she was going to do more. The books were of parchment, 
which was here first used, hence the word parchment, which is derived from the name of the town Pergamus. Of the structures which adorned the city, the most renowned was the altar of Zeus, which was 40 feet in height, and also one of the wonders of the ancient world. And many believe that that was the reference to the throne of Satan, where the altar of Zeus was. Pergamum means height elevation because they elevated themselves, especially with the Zeus God elevated on these great steps. Known for the creating of the medium for writing, uh, which is the parchment, it also held the second largest library in the known world at the time. Uh, key scriptures, Revelation 2.13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. That's pretty powerful, where Satan has his throne. So we're going to look at that later too. Thyatira, refounded by Seleucus I in Nicator, approximately three centuries before the time of Christ, the small city became a commercial centre for the economy of the area. Situated on a road between Pergamus and Sardis, residents of the city became wealthy and, like people of other nearby cities, built temples to pagan gods. Thyatira was specially uh, noted for the trade guilds, which were probably more organised than there were in any other ancient city. The guilds were closely connected with the Asiatic religions of the place. Pagan feasts with which immoral practices were associated were held and therefore the nature of the guilds was such that they were opposed to Christianity. Actually, everywhere Christianity was, it was opposed by everyone. Thyatira means perfume or a sacrifice of labour. It was famous for its dyeing uh, and was a centre for the indigo trade. More guilds are known in Thyatira than any other contemporary city in the Roman province. Um, inscriptions mention the following wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, and so on. So this was a very prosperous city, a very powerful city with workmen um, all organised. Key scripture, Revelation 2.20, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Now that's an interesting statement because we're going to find out a little bit about who Jezebel was and um, what that means in context to uh, that church. Sardis was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. Did you hear that, Lydia? You had an ancient ki kingdom after you, named after you. Its importance was due first to its military strength, secondly to its situation on an important highway leading from the interior to the Aegean coast, and thirdly to its commanding the wide and fertile plain of the Hermas. Disaster came to the great city under the reign of Emperor Tiberius when in AD 17, Sardis was destroyed by an earthquake, but it was rebuilt with the help of 10 million sesterces, which are Roman coins, from the emperor and exempted them from paying tax for five years. So they didn't have to pay tax for five years. That was nice, wasn't it? So they could rebuild the city. Um, it was one of the great cities of Western Asia Minor until the later Byzantine period. Sardis means Prince of Joy, its importance was due first to its military strength, second to its situation on an important highway leading from the interior to the Aegean coast, and thirdly to its commanding the wide and fertile fields, as we just spoke about. Key scripture is Revelation 3.1. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You don't want to have a reputation of being alive, but are dead. You know, there's potentially many churches in the world that have reputations of being alive, but they're dead. Philadelphia. There's some ruins of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was founded sometime after 189 BC. 
Philadelphia quickly became an important and wealthy trade center for as the coast cities declined, it grew in power and retained its importance even until late Byzantine times. Like the other cities in Asia Minor, it often had to be rebuilt due to earthquakes. Roman emperors often helped rebuild these cities and in the early part of the first century, the famous historian from the area, Strabo, specifically wrote of the walls of the houses in Philadelphia being cracked due to earthquakes. And Philadelphia means love of a brother. And the locality of Philadelphia was subject to constant earthquakes, which in the time of Strabo rendered even the town walls of Philadelphia unsafe. The expense of reparation was constant, and hence perhaps the poverty of the members of the church. I don't know if that's necessarily a conclusion we can make, but they, they were a very, very poor church. Not to say Philadelphia was necessarily a poor city. Key scripture is Revelation 3 I know that you have little strength, Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And now we get to the last one, Laodicea. And along with Colossae and Hierapolis, it was one of the cities in the fertile Laius Valley. The great Roman road stretching to the inland of Asia from the coast of Eph at Ephesus, and it ran straight through its centre, making Laodicea an important centre of trade and communication. In addition, its wealth came from the production of a fine quality of famous glossy black wool. So, wealth, so wealthy was Laodicea that after the great earthquake of AD 17, which destroyed it, the people refused imperial help in rebuilding the city, choosing rather to do it entirely by themselves. That's how wealthy Laodicea was. They rebuilt a city with their own funds. And that's important to remember because there's some references to you are rich, you know, in the book of Laodicea, or the letter to Laodicea. Laodicea has a famous school of medicine and a special ointment known as Phrygian powder, famous for its cure of eye defects. Who also knows that's, that's a reference to something that Jesus brings up in the, in the uh, epistle. It was either manufactured or distributed there, as there were ear ointments also. Ear ointments and eye ointments. Laodicea means just people. A just people. It has other meanings to the same name, but in the Greek it means just people. Key scripture, Revelation 3.16. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. And scholars believe that this metaphor is taken from the discovery that the water supply in the city was lukewarm as it was drawn from the hot springs at nearby Hierapolis, and by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. They also said that they used to draw really, really super cold water from a spring from another place and by the time it got there in its pipes it was lukewarm as well. So it had the they couldn't get cold water and they couldn't get hot water. It was lukewarm. And in a sense Jesus uses that as a example of the kind of people they were as well. So the meaning of the seven churches, many of us have heard how the names of the sons of Adam to Noah knit together to make a prophetic revelation of Jesus Christ. Who's heard that before? But the names of the sons of Adam, Adam had a son and his son and a son, and they all have meanings in their names, and that those meanings make a sentence, a very, very amazing sentence. So I'm just going to show you, show you that. What we have up here is we've got, well, they put God as the father, and so the God means the God. Adam is a name for man. Seth is, the name is appointed, means appointed. Enosh means mortal man. Kenan means born of sorrow. Mahalal is, means the glory of God. Jared 
means shall come down. Enoch means instructing. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Lamech means those in despair. And Noah means comfort or and rest. So if you read it together as one, the God, man, is appointed a mortal man of sorrow is born. So the God-man, who's the God-man? And he's appointed um, a mortal man. He becomes a mortal man and born in sorrow. The glory of God shall come down, instructing that his death shall bring those in despair comfort and rest. That's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? That's it. And you can actually go through, a lot of scholars have gone through and studied all the different names and come up with a whole, all these different sentences just coming out of the names of the uh, characters in the Bible spoken of. Now about two years ago, I woke up thinking that the seven churches could have a powerful meaning. And so I started researching the meaning of the names, and this is one of the discovered as we I went through all the different names uh, before. So we have Ephesus, which means desirable. Smyrna means myrrh or death. Pergamum means height elevation. Thyatira means a perfume or a sacrifice of labor. Sardis means prince of joy. Philadelphia means love of a brother. And Laodicea means a just people. So this is how God will justify his church. The seven churches reads, A desirable death will elevate the sacrifice of the prince of joy for the love of his brothers to make them a just people. Isn't that powerful? So that's on that mailing route that the order that those churches came in made this sentence. This is interesting as well. A view held by many eschatologists is that God has symbolized the seven churches to parallel with seven periods or stages of New Testament church history. And I find this a fascinating study and I'm quite open to the application. I'm open to the application just because as I've researched it, it seems to fit. seems to fit. Um, of course, it's not doesn't fit like a glove, but it fits. There's many things that you can say they parallel. And this is the historist's view and a futurist's view. Uh, many futurists believe this. That Ephesus, don't worry about meaning, that's, we've already covered that. So Ephesus it was the apostolic church, which was 33 from the time of Jesus' death to 100 uh, AD. Smyrna was the persecuted church. And from 100 or even though persecution was occurring there as well, but from 100 AD to 313 AD, it was heavily persecuted, um, especially by the Roman Empire and always by the Jews. Pergamus was the compromised church, a church that compromised itself, and that was 313 to 538. Thyatira was the corrupt church, which was 538 to 1517, which was the Dark Ages was when the Bible was held from the common person in the language of the common person. Sardis was the Reformation Church, which was 1517 to 1755. And Philadelphia was the Awakened Church, which actually I don't believe it's 1755, I believe it's more 1730, the time of the First Great Awakening. And the reason I say it is because the First Great Awakening awakened the entire planet to the reality of Jesus and his presence uh, among thousands, thousands, like I'm talking, the, the audiences that will come uh, to hear people like John Wesley and George Whitfield and, and so on speak were 
20 to 25,000 strong and they would speak and the presence of God go through those crowds and, and salvation was in, at a level we've never seen in history. So the Philadelphian church, they believe that aligns with the Awakened Church which runs right up to 1844 and that's an interesting time, 1844, when they say, it's again, these are rough dates, Laodicea, the church began, which is today's church, from about 1844 to the end. So now I'm going to just talk a little bit about that. The period of Ephesus and Smyrna. So Ephesus was 33 to 100, where the church is born. The time of the apostles and the disciples and the writing of the books of the New Testament. It's also the church where it says, you have forsaken your first love. So it was the time where they forsook their first love. So it's interesting to say in the apostle church, if it's true that there were those that had forsaken their first love and they had to return to their former love. Now you can understand why. It's because Jesus was there. They're passionate. Jesus, they saw him on the cross and they saw him alive and there's passion in the church. But after years, that passion would wane, wouldn't it? It would wane because Jesus is no longer there and now they're being persecuted. Now they're going through hardship. They're being pushed out of their homes. They've lost their homes. They can't even live in their own cities anymore. They have to go to you know, cities and other places. Many of them, it says in the book of Acts, went out and brought incredible moves of the Spirit into those places. And, and they set up churches and the gospel spread. But it also, you could imagine how many people would have struggled to, uh, you know, to retain their first love. So that's where the application could fit. Now remember, this is just, um, I'm not making this doctrine, and I'm not saying, I'm not dogmatic on this, but I do find it interesting that we can have these parallels. In Smyrna, it was from 800 to 313, and it's a period of great Christian persecution until the time of Emperor Constantine, who supposedly became a Christian, making Christianity it's a, the official religion of Rome. Famous Christians during that time was Polycarp, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, incredible men of God from that time. Pergamum was 313 to 538, and Christianity is now the official religion of the Roman Empire, but it becomes compromised by the unbiblical teachings of the Roman Catholic priests. As you can imagine, when Christianity up till that time was underground, no one could come out openly and say, I'm a Christian, because they'd be persecuted. And there was great persecutions of the Christian church. But as soon as the Romans accepted it, suddenly they could be Christians in the open. But what happened was there was a lot of compromising that had to be done to allow their beliefs to fit with the Romans and the way the Romans wanted it to be. And so there was a, a, a major compromisation uh, taking place. And I don't think it was healthy for the church personally. Famous Christians that... When I say famous, most people probably don't even know these names. Imelanus uh, and Alphilus. Now, these were men that were persecuted for standing up against the Roman church at that time. And they were martyred, they were killed for the faith. And there was many others as well. I just put a couple of names there. Actually, their names would be famous in heaven more than famous here on earth. The period of Thyatira. Thyatira was 538 to 1517, and this is the Dark Ages. The church is corrupted because the Bible cannot be read by the common person. Christians laid their life down to translate the Bible into the language of the common people. This was a terrible time, and, the, and I believe the main reason is because the Catholic Church held back the Word of God from the average person. The only place you could go in the Catholic Church 
to hear the word of God, or if you could even hear it, was to the priest. The priest became the word of God. What he said was truth. And what we found was, what they were saying was not the truth. It wasn't in the Bible. They were saying, if you want salvation, you need to pay us. If you want your family saved, you need to pay us. Give us money, give us money. So during that period, the Catholic Church became the richest thing on the planet. But they held back the truth. So it was a, a terrible, terrible time. Famous Christians during that time were John Wycliffe, John Huss, Jerome Prague, and there was many others. And these men you know, laid their lives down to get the scriptures into the common language, literally died to get the scriptures into the common language. So when we sit down and leisurely read this book on our bed at night, you know, blood's been spilled to get this here. And their, their appreciation of it was so great that they, just to get it to the person, to get it into the person's heart, they died to get it there. So we should treasure this. We should read every word and, and meditate on every word and really absorb it because you know many people didn't have it for a thousand years. It was called the Dark Ages because no one had the light of Christ. And it was a very, very sad time. But I'm sure God was still reaching in the hearts in those times. And there was a remnant of true Christianity that ran through. Sardis 15, 17 to 1755. The Dark Ages end as Martin Luther nails his 95 Thesis upon the Wittenberg Castle Church doors. This was a huge event um, and made him or caused him to become a wanted man. He was hunted and he was on the run a lot of the time. The Great Reformation begins in a movement called the Protestant Reformation and Protestant simply means protesting, protesting the teachings of the day of the Catholic Church. Famous Christians of course were Martin Luther, there was William Tyndale, and there was John Hooper and many others. The period of Philadelphia, 1730-1845, a but we say they're in America but it, or in Europe, but it, it spread over the earth. It had an effect everywhere. There were some incredible moves in the spirit. Famous Christians, John and Charles Wesley. Who's heard of John and Charles Wesley? Charles Wesley was a prolific hymn writer. He wrote, um, I think they worked out that he wrote like two hymns a day for his, during the period that he was in ministry because he wrote that many hymns. Like That's incredible. Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards wrote a... a um, uh, an incredible sermon that began a, um, a huge revival and it was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and all he did was he sort of did what I'm doing today just stood up there with these little glasses they reckon and he just read it he just read this thing but he was in the presence of God he was a very very anointed man but he just read it straight off the page hardly any, any, um, anything extra and a revival broke out and they were saying people were holding on to the pews, feeling like they were falling into hell, like the power of God was so powerful in, uh, in that time. So these men just stirred the, stirred the nations and turned Christianity from what was uh, very little known in many respects to probably the most prominent faith on the planet and most known as the most powerful faith because they were seeing real moves of God, real things happening in the spirit. And of course, there's George Whitfield, Charles Finney in that time. Now, the period of Laodicea, and we, 
I'm sure we're going to see that, especially when we read from the uh, epistle of, to Laodicea, we're going to see some very strong similarities to our modern church. Laodicea is supposedly from 1844 to the end, and during the 1900s there was a rise in cults. So during 1844, actually, it would probably have been around 1829 uh, onwards, there was a rise in cults and those with deceptive theology, like there was the Jehovah Witnesses, the Seventh-day Adventists were born at that time. They were born with false prophecies. So Jehovah Witnesses said, Jesus is going to return on this day. And he didn't return. So they said, oh, no, we were wrong. Jesus is going to return on this day. And then that day came and he didn't return. Oh, and then they said, oh, well, he did return, but he returned spiritually, so we didn't see him. And then the Jehovah Witnesses said, okay, no worries. And they followed along with that. And guess what? The Seventh-day Adventists were born the same way. They said Jesus was going to return on this certain day and he didn't return. And then he was going to return on another day and he didn't return. So it was a rise in these cultish views of Christianity. There was also the Christian Dolphin cult came through the 1900s. Also Christian Science. And there were quite a few other, other groups as well. Following that came modernism and then postmodernism as a, a world philosophy. And then a smorgasbord of belief systems were just sort of thrown in there where, to the point where people could pick and choose what they want to believe. It says, you know, people will say, I like the idea of reincarnation. I like the fact that I may have been, you know, like a woman likes to say, I was Cleopatra in a past life. Do you know how many people were Cleopatra in a past life? <laughs> I, I reckon there must have been 10,000, 20,000 more women that believe they were Cleopatra in a past life. Now, isn't that deceptive? You know, so they, they pick and choose their belief system and add to that the popularization of paganism, where our culture now is essentially pagan. The hard part when you live in a pagan culture is trying to discern uh, Christianity, trying to discern how do we live in this? How do, how do we apply our Christianity and live in this world that popular, has so popularized paganism that you know everyone you speak to, if you speak to them about homosexuality, yeah, that's fine. And, uh, you know, they, all, all the things that they get into, uh, uh, that even I've heard so many Christians just say, yeah, yeah, I, I don't mind, I don't mind, that's all fine, well and good that they can do that. And so what we're doing is we're compromising all the time. And I know as parents we have to compromise all the time, um, raising kids and, and so on. So it's hard in this day to be a Christian. And, uh, and it's been popularised, paganism has been popularised through music, and the movie-making industry, like Hollywood and so on, they make paganism very popular. Like you don't see many movies today that doesn't glorify paganism in some form. And then we have this in the evangelical church, which you'd think would be holding strong, we have a watered-down, easy believism. And it's easy. Just put your hand up if you want to get saved. Oh, yes, you want to be saved? Praise God. You want to be saved? Praise God. Lord, thank you for saving them. No repentance. No, you know, realizing that they are sinners. It's just easy believism. Makes it easy. Once they, then they get told, oh, on, on top of that is you can't lose your salvation whatsoever. You know, there's no chance of losing your salvation. So the person goes through thinking, I don't have to repent. I don't have to turn and change. I don't have to live a holy life because that's legalistic. And all I have to do is just believe in Jesus and I can live the way I want. And I can't lose my salvation even if I try to. That does not say that in Scripture. does not say that. It says, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. 
So he's telling us, my people will be a holy people. My people will be a just people. My people will be a people of over, overcoming powers to overcome the things of the world and the pagan you know, culture of this world. And now we have what I would believe is the perfect example of a Laodicean, lukewarm Christian church. Amen? And the struggle has always been, even in this church, is let's not be lukewarm. Let's be either hot or cold. If we're going to be hot, we're going to be hot and excited and, and filled with enthusiasm for Jesus Christ. If we're going to be cold, what that means is refreshing. You know, when it's a really, really super hot day, you don't like drinking a lukewarm glass of water, do you? You want a cold refreshing. So it's not cold in nature. You're not trying to be a cold person. That's a different reference. Jesus was saying, I'd rather you be hot or cold. He'd rather you be cold and refreshing and, and bringing much, you know, rejuvenation to people and life or hot and on fire and zealous about the things of God. All right. So famous Christians during this time, and this is my own little list I put together. Leonard Ravenhill, I think he should be on that list. Uh, Tozer, Bounds, and of course, Joe Schimmel. Got to have Joe Schimmel on that list. And Eric Ludy, and I'm, I'm getting into Eric Ludy these days. And there's so many others I just... Didn't say I was going to put Andy on there. No, no. Yeah. I, I don't put my own name on that list. But um, yeah, it's. Uh, I like these guys because Joe Schimmel stands against the modern culture, and that's why I've got him there. He stands against lukewarm Christians, you know, and that's why I was saying this morning about worship. You know, when you get in here, get hot for God. Let's not be lukewarm. Let's get either hot or cold. Be refreshing or lift him up and. Glorify him and just give him everything. Use that time to lift up the name of Jesus and, and be passionate so that Jesus, you, I always think in worship, when I get into worship, I want to put a smile on my Lord's face yes, yes. by the way I worship him. Amen? Yes. Who wants to, when you worship, you just go, oh Lord, I love you so much. And I just sort of want to see a smile appear as Jesus Christ says, and I love you too, my son. Yes. You know? You want to give him that. You want to make him feel so special, have that special place in your life. And, you know, we sing glorious songs in this church. Like, you know, if you listen to these words here, Lord of the heavens and the earth, who's that? My saviour, redeemer, risen Lord, he's risen. All honour and glory, power and strength to him upon the throne. Glorifying Him on the throne. Holy, holy, you are worthy. Praises to the Son of God. Jesus alone, you are worthy. Crowned in righteousness and peace. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Praises to the great I Am. Hosanna, join with angels singing. Worthy is the Lamb of God. So when we sing that song, give it everything because it's true. Amen. Then look at this one. Holy, holy, you are Lord. Uh, holy, holy, are you Lord. The whole earth is filled with your glory. Let the nations rise to give. Let the nations rise to give honour and glory to your name. Let your face shine on us. Do we want his face to shine on us? And the world will know you live. All the heavens shout your praise. Beautiful is our God. The universe will sing hallelujah to our King. Aren't they beautiful words? Yeah? 
Revelation song, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, holy, holy is He. Sing a new song to Him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. And I won't go any further, but these are incredible lyrics. So when you see those lyrics and you hear the music, we're doing the best we can up here. If, if, if the music's not good enough, we'll, we'll try harder, won't we? We'll practice a bit more. But we're trying to create an ambience for you to worship at your utmost. To where, because you know what? Jesus seeks worshippers. His eyes range throughout the earth, looking for those who love and adore him and worship him, whose hearts are lifted up to him. That's the kind of people our Lord wants. And as I said before, when the Lord returns, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find true worshippers, those that are worshipping him in spirit and truth? So we need to see our worship times as times that we practice that. Where we practice worshipping him openly in, uh, among the brethren, among those that love him. Amen? Amen. I'm not going to go too much further because there's, I'm sort of halfway through right now. So I'm going to save the other half for next week. And this is where we actually go into the words of the scriptures. I just wanted to give you an understanding of all the uh, churches. But each of the letters begins with a description of the one writing the letter. So if you read each letter, each of the seven letters, begins with a description where Jesus explains who he is in different forms. The second are the deeds, the commendations and the rebukes. He goes through and he says, these are the things I have uh, that, that I uh, commend, and these things I don't commend. And he goes through and, and there's a bit of a passage like that. And then they always end the same way with the blessing that comes to the overcomer. He who overcomes will receive this. He who overcomes will receive that. So he, he starts with showing us who he is, he then talks about the things we do right, the things we do wrong, and then he tells us about the blessings that will come to us if we overcome the things that he's talking about here. And I will finish just with this, just with this little bit here. Jesus describing himself to the churches. Revelation 2.1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So who holds the seven stars? It's Jesus. He holds seven angels in his hand, and he walks among lampstands, which are the seven churches. Um, Smyrna, Smyrna, which is Revelation 2.8, he says, To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last. So who's the first and the last? Jesus. But what is the first and the last? The first meaning, the beginning of all eternity, and the end of all eternity. He's the first... And he's the last. So he's just said, I'm God, who died and came to life again. So the risen Saviour. Pergamum, in Revelation 2.12, says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. The double-edged sword was a symbol to the Romans of their power and their authority. And so when Jesus says, I hold the double-edged sword in my mouth, what he's saying is, I am all authority. It's in me. It comes out of me. My word is the authority. Thyatira, Revelation 2.18, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Sardis, Revelation 3.1, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. 
So he's saying in all these descriptions that he's God. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David, the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And then lastly, Laodicea, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the Amen. What's Amen mean? Sorry? Yeah, so let it be. Yeah, so be it, yeah. So he's saying, these are the words of the Soviet. This is the words of the one who completes everything, finishes everything. Amen. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. The ruler of God's creation, meaning all authority, all power has been given to Jesus Christ. Now, next week I'm going to talk about the good and the bad, which is that two churches were commended, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Five were not, Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Laodicea. And this was the part that took me the long period of time. The rest of it didn't take me as long. This was where I went through the scriptures and all the description, different things. It talks about uh, the, uh, where Satan has his throne, the city where Satan has his throne. It talks about the synagogue of Satan. It talks about Jezebel. It talks about Balaam and Balak and a whole range of characters uh, and things in, in these letters that a lot of people can be quite mystified by when you read of these things. So I went through and did a lot of research in, in finding what I believe was the most reasonable um, explanation of who these uh, uh, characters are that are described in, in these books, or these letters. So hopefully I can see you guys next week to come and hear it again. I hope it hasn't been too much today. It's a very different style of the way I normally preach. Very good, Rob. So, thanks. Oh, God bless you. And uh, I feel like I've been a school teacher today. <laughs> Did you all learn something? Yeah, absolutely. Yes? Right, right. All right, God bless you all. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this time now. I thank you that uh, for this wonderful um, uh, congregation that um, uh, heard the word today and, and thank you for their blessing on it, Lord. And I just pray that your spirit will just move in each of us and cause us to, and stir us to look deeper into the word. Yes. Stir us to look deeper into um, these seven epistles that are written to the churches, Lord. And may we be blessed from reading them and may we also be helped in our Christian walk to walk closer to you as we do, Lord. And so I just pray your blessing over us all and be with us all, those of us that are sick and those that couldn't make it today, Lord. I just pray your blessing upon them and, um, and help us to get, uh, get stronger and stronger in our Christian walk. And may this church get stronger as we continue to study the Word and may your Spirit always bless what takes place at Blessed Hope Chapel. And keep us from going in the wrong direction, but always uh, direct us in the right path um, so that we will do your will always. Yes. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.